0: Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast, with your host, Johnny Langton. People in Parliament occupy themselves with private animosities and petty quarrels, and think little of the national interest. It is impossible to credit the serene indifference with which they consider events outside their own country. The King had limited interest in the affairs of England, Scotland and Ireland. His interest lay in keeping the King of France at bay, and would use England as a weapon to achieve his goals. It was perhaps the king's indifference that allowed Parliament to gain permanent supremacy over the nation, leading to a remarkable transformation in the political and religious affairs of England. In their reign, the parliamentary state was established. To this day, it remains the enduring feature of the British political system. This is William III and Mary II. William was born in The Hague, in the Dutch Republic, on the 4th of November, 1650. His mother was Mary the Princess Royal, the eldest daughter of Charles I, the former King of England, Scotland and Ireland. His father was William II, Prince of Orange, and Stadtholder, the ruler of the United Provinces of the Netherlands. The young William was born during a period of intense political turmoil. His father had been embroiled in a bitter feud with the powerful regents of Amsterdam, In one of his provinces, Holland. The feud was exacerbated in 1650 when eight Hollanders were kidnapped and imprisoned. He then sent 10,000 men to attempt to seize Amsterdam. The city refused to surrender, despite his successful efforts in purging Amsterdam of its republican councillors. However, it would be in vain. Eight days before the young William's birth, the stadtholder William II, his father, died of smallpox. The regents acted immediately to reverse the effects of the coup. They reinstated the councillors and freed the captive regents. They then made constitutional adjustments. The states formally took over their stadtholder's powers. The Dutch Republic entered a stadholderless period and the newborn William was disinherited. He was initially raised by his mother, who was cold and distant. She was a discontent expat who withdrew from Dutch society, much to the disappointment of the locals. William had had a chaotic and neglectful childhood. Despite the long-term effects, he grew up to be vivacious and charming and was trained to be a ruler. He took daily instruction from Calvinist preachers and began to believe in predestined divine providence. William's upbringing and education became a point of deep contention after the death of his mother in 1660, between his dynasty's supporters and his father's adversaries, the Republican Dutch. He would end up being raised by Johan de Witt, one of the kidnapped regents, and now the Grand Pensionary of Holland, making him the most powerful political figure in all the Dutch Republic during the Stadtholder period. He would instruct William on state matters, along with the occasional game of tennis. Despite de Witt's effort to restrain William, his obvious ability meant that he slowly became prominent in his teenage years. DeWitt successfully resisted Orange's cause to make William stadholder in 1667, as the young prince approached the age of 18. Yet three years later, he was admitted as a member of the Council of State with full voting rights, despite DeWitt's efforts to thwart him. In 1670, his uncle Charles II ruled England, Scotland and Ireland. The king had always kept an eye on his nephew's education. When the young prince visited his uncles, Charles and James, in 1670, he was apparently appalled by their licentious court, yet reportedly loosened up after much drinking. During his visit, he may well have met his eight-year-old cousin, the daughter of James, Duke of York, Mary. She was born in 1862, Her mother was Anne Hyde. She was born third in line to the throne. Due to her parents being Catholics, King Charles ordered her to be raised separately in Richmond Palace due to concerns of her too becoming a Catholic and further provoking the population fearful of a growing Catholic dynasty. She would dutifully remain an Anglican. She received an education that included no history, geography, law or even English grammar she was known to be emotional and deeply passionate. She would write girlish love letters to an older girl called Frances Apsley. Back in the Dutch Republic in 1672 was a year that would go down in Dutch history. It was known as Rampjaar, Disaster Year. It was invaded by France, England and two provinces of the Holy Roman Empire, Cologne and Munster. Charles II had grown closer to the French King Louis XIV, much to the suspicion of the anti-Catholic majority English population. In June, the French crossed the Rhine and took three provinces in as many weeks. While the Dutch navy kept the English at bay, the army folded. Panic set in. The population were baying for de Witt's blood. They demanded William be made stadtholder. Attempts had already been made on De Witt's life, and William cut a heroic figure as a commander stubbornly resisting French occupation. The states gave in, and William was made stadtholder on the 8th of July. This did not save De Witt. On the 20th of August, De Witt and his brother were confronted by a mob accusing him of treachery. They were butchered. While William, on the surface, was furious with the murders, He claimed there were too many perpetrators to prosecute, and he did not want to run the risk of antagonising the rebels. They needed debating. Some of those individuals later found themselves entering high office. When William was pressed to sue for peace against superior numbers, he replied, The Republic is indeed in great danger, but there is one sure way never to see it lost, and that is to die in the last ditch the Dutch recovered. In September 1673, the Dutch retook the key fortress of Narden, and in November, they captured Bonn, in the province of Cologne. They then chased the French back across the Rhine. The following year, Charles II withdrew his forces. Ultimately, the Dutch survived the disaster year. After Charles II was forced to make peace with the Dutch, it opened up a new diplomatic avenue. In 1677, Charles persuaded James to allow her daughter Mary to marry William, in order to abate the growing anti-Catholic feeling, resonating through the English citizenry. William refused to marry Mary until they'd met. Fifteen-year-old Mary was five foot eleven, a beauty, with dark eyes and hair. She was a romantic... And tender hearted. Twenty-six year old William was five foot six, with a fragile build and sickly. He had severe asthma and scoliosis. He wore a brace to counter his hunched back. Despite Charles's efforts to lighten the mood with jokes, the wedding was glum. James didn't attend, and Mary burst into tears at the altar. William took little interest. After the ceremony he returned swiftly to The Hague. There, the couple received a grand procession. Despite ominous beginnings, it would turn into a happy marriage, a genuine relationship. Unlike when William's mother moved to the Dutch Republic, Mary made efforts to assimilate and she proved popular among the Dutch. Due to William being a Protestant hero, the match was also popular in Britain. The marriage would prove fruitful for William. To a degree, it drew England away from their enemy, Catholic France. On the continent, tensions grew in the 1680s. In 1685, Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes. This had provided the Huguenots, French Protestants, freedom of conscience. They had been treated with tolerance. Now, they would once again be treated as heretics. The Dutch Republic was flooded with Huguenot refugees escaping persecution. The following year, William joined the League of Augsburg with Sweden, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, and many others, to counter French expansionist plans. William's marriage had secured fragile peace with Britain. Now he began to entertain the idea of taking further advantage. From 1677 onwards, William became a candidate to succeed his childless uncle, Charles II, through his marriage to Mary, who was second in line. The obstacle was James, Charles's brother, Mary's Catholic father. Growing anti-Catholic feeling precipitated the exclusion crisis. Parliament attempt to exclude James and all Catholics from the throne. It failed. James succeeded Charles as king on the 6th of February 1685. William immediately became conciliatory. He would attempt to undermine France by any means necessary. He would be stopped in his tracks, however, when James refused to join the League of Augsburg. James's honeymoon period was short. He antagonised all. He removed Protestants from key positions, and pro-Catholic policy led to many urging William to intervene. By 1688, William was assembling an invasion force. £200,000 had been poured into William's coffers by English merchants, yet he was hesitant. He needed the British public on side. He needed reassurance. In June 1688, the Queen, James' second wife, Mary of Medina, gave birth to a baby boy. William's wife Mary was no longer heir. James's accession was accepted with the understanding that his Protestant daughter Mary would succeed him, thus preventing a Catholic dynasty. All trust was gone. In the same week, William received a letter from the so-called Immortal Seven made up of prominent Whigs and Tories imploring him to provide forces to secure a coup. It also became clear that the French were drawn elsewhere there would be no foreign resistance. William assembled his force, 250 carrier ships, 35,000 men including 11,000 foot soldiers, 4,000 cavalry and importantly a printing press to disparage the King. He landed at Brixham in Devon, announcing his intentions to protect the liberties of England and the Protestant religion. William couldn't afford to spill English blood while claiming to be protecting their liberty. Fortunately for William, there was no need. Despite James's superior numbers, a week after he landed, James's generals began defecting in droves. James was a nervous wreck. He did nothing to inspire his troops. It had a devastating effect on the morale of the army camp. James himself had a breakdown, and he abandoned his army. The news of his second daughter Anne's defection finally broken. Mary was left in a moral quandary. She doesn't want her father harmed, but supported her husband. On the 11th of December, James left the capital for the coast. The same night he departed, local insurgents began disarming local Catholics properties were attacked from churches to country estates, anywhere mass was thought to be heard. Essex MP John Branston commented, anyone who tried to justify the base and villainous actions of that night must be degenerated from common humanity. James sought to escape peacefully, but was caught by local fishermen and brought back to London. The last thing William wanted was to harm the beleaguered king. He couldn't afford for the Catholic king to become a martyr. In late December, James was allowed to leave quietly. The royal seal was tossed into the Thames, and he was received at the court of Louis XIV. William would be the last foreign leader to successfully invade Britain. Now what? Adam de La Pryne, a contemporary diarist, wrote, The most bold and heroic adventure of the most illustrious and famous Prince of Orange who soon turned the scale of affairs, and delivered us out of all fear of tyranny and popery, which, as far as I can possibly see, would have fallen upon us. As William entered London, support for him was unquestionably widespread, but he had given no public intimation that his ultimate goal was to seize the crown for himself. William's ambition would be met with resistance. Jacobites and my lords wanted James reinstated. The Whigs claimed that James had broken his contract with the people. Tories countered this argument, claiming James has no contract with the people. He was divinely ordained. Some moderates suggested William and Mary rule as regents until James's death. Others wanted Mary to rule as sole monarch. William refused such a deal. He did not want to act as he called it. His wife's usher in apron strings. there was only one precedent in history. Philip II of Spain had had similar reservations when his wife Mary I became queen. He never succeeded, however, in securing true power for himself. But William had more leverage. He levied an ultimatum. I will not oppose the princess's rights, but I will hold no power dependent on a woman. Therefore, if those schemes are adopted, I can give you no assistance in the settlement of a nation, and will return to my own country. Only William's 30,000 men stood between peace and anarchy. When Lord Danby and others approached Mary to persuade her to rule alone, she responded, I shall take it extremely unkindly if any pretense of their care for me should set up a divided interest between me and my prince. Eventually, a small majority across both houses declared that the throne was vacant. In February 1689, the Convention Parliament then offered the throne to William and Mary to rule as co-monarchs, the first and only true dual monarchy in British history. In the same month, the Crown of Scotland was also offered to the pair. On the 21st of April, the pair were crowned King and Queen by Henry Compton, Bishop of London the man James had dismissed, one of the immortal seven who had sent William the letter that had triggered the invasion. William sat on the throne of Edward I. Mary sat alongside in a facsimile chair, indicative of who would truly rule. William mocked the comedy of the coronation, full of foolish, popish ceremony. It was the first time that a monarch took the oath to uphold the law according to the statutes of parliament. Parliament would ensure that this glorious revolution meant their supremacy over the crown would endure. Upon their succession, the Declaration of Rights was read out. As part of the deal, the newly crowned co-monarchs had to accept the Bill of Rights, which was subsequently passed into law in December 1689. It was a landmark act in the constitutional law of England. It restated many already laid out by the Declaration. It established restrictions on royal prerogative. The monarch couldn't suspend laws passed by Parliament. Levy taxes without their consent, infringe on the right to petition, raise a standing army during peacetime without consent, or interfere in elections. The monarch also couldn't punish speech in Parliament, allowing freedom of debate, also known as parliamentary privilege, which prevails to this day as a crucial part of the British political system. The monarch also couldn't demand excessive bail, nor inflict cruel punishments many of which had been blatantly committed freely by their predecessor. Taken together, these clauses could be said to represent the establishment of parliamentary sovereignty and the parliamentary state. Parliament had met every single year since the Bill of Rights was passed. The monarchy would now only exist on the terms set out by Parliament. William was not happy, but he abided. Perhaps had the monarch been one more committed to the role for divine reasons, he may well have resisted. After all, his main objective was to use England as an arsenal to attack France. Yet he was wise not to engage in conflict at home. The succession was also settled. William and Mary would rule. If one died, the other would continue to rule. This was a big victory for William. When both died, Mary's sister Anne would rule, followed by Anne's children. Then any children William may have in a potential subsequent marriage. The Bill of Rights is a landmark document in the development of civil liberties in the UK. It continues to be cited in legal proceedings across the Commonwealth, particularly on parliamentary freedom of speech. It also influenced and became a model for many foreign statements of right, including the United States, France, the UN and Europe. William and Mary were seemingly secure, However, a significant minority refused to acknowledge the pair, believing in divine right of kings, and a monarch should not be crowned by a vote in Parliament. For over half a century, the Jacobite resistance, named after the ousted James II, would endure. 400 clergymen and bishops in England and Scotland refused oaths to the co-monarchs. Ireland remained loyal to James. Just a couple of months after his fall, James joined a French contingent to Ireland. They began squeezing the Protestants by way of sieges. Despite their struggles, the siege of Derry and Enniskillen forced Williams' hand, and he intervened personally. At the Battle of the Boyne, Williams' 36,000 men faced 23,000 Jacobites on the 1st of July, 1690. During the battle, William was dismounted and grazed by a cannonball. The Jacobites, thinking they got their man, sent a dispatch to France with the news. Yet in the style of his namesake at Hastings, six centuries before, William paraded himself in the front line to reassure his men. He then drove the Jacobites back across the river, and James fled once again. He made for France, never to return to the British Isles. His threat was extinguished. The following year the King completed his conquest of Ireland and in October the Treaty of Limerick was signed. The Irish surrendered on the terms that their Catholics would be protected and the officers who refused the oath could be allowed into exile. William agreed. Ireland had been pacified. Over in Scotland, Though William and Mary had been crowned, resistance persisted. When over 30 members of Clan Macdonald were butchered by Scottish government forces for reportedly refusing the oath to William and Mary, in shades of the aftermath of the murders of DeWitt and his brother, William decided to turn a blind eye. Only two years later was the case investigated, and leniency was shown. It entered Jacobite folklore and became a propaganda tool to rile up resistors. Scotland too, for now, was secure. Yet the French had taken advantage of a distraction. Just nine days after the Battle of the Boyne, they attacked the English and Dutch fleets at Beachy Head, sinking many ships without losing a single vessel. The French had gained control of the channel, yet they did not press home their advantage. William would focus all his energy on his old enemy. For most of the 1690s, William spent each spring and summer on the continent on campaign. The first monarch since Henry VIII to raise an army against the French, William had a deep obsession with Louis. The League of Augsburg, also known as the Grand Alliance, had avowed to reverse Louis's annexations and weaken his influence over the German princes. France had the strongest army in Europe, its navy was larger than that of England and the Dutch provinces combined. It was in the Netherlands where the majority of the conflict took place, but there was little open warfare. These were sieges. The land war was not going well. Yet at sea, William had learned the lessons of Beachy Head and invested in the navy. An attempt to land an invasion force in England and place James II back on the throne ended in failure when the French were routed by the combined English and Dutch navies at the battles of Barfleur and Cape La Hogue, The French were pursued as they scattered. They were cornered and terrorised in French ports. Centuries later, historians were calling the victory the 17th century Trafalgar. The English regained its supremacy over the Channel. In William's absence, it was Mary who roused the troops to victory. When William was in England, Mary was subservient. When he was away, Mary deputised with his advice. When William was at home, she returned to her default role with no hesitation. Deputising was a role she didn't relish. She said that business breaks her brain and does not ease her heart. She would claim that she only desired not to make a foolish figure in the world. It must be the Privy Council to do all things. She once bemoaned having to open Parliament and celebrate her birthday on the same day. Her submissive nature contributed to her popularity. She allayed worries about the dangers of feminine rule. Elizabeth I, she was not. Meanwhile, the European wars were costing an eye-watering 75% of public expenditure, a total of £40 million over the course of nine years. Even France struggled under the weight of war the army was four times the size it was 50 years prior. It was unsustainable for pre-industrial economies. William, eager to further develop and strengthen the navy, established the Bank of England in 1694. The bank was given exclusive possession of the government's balances and was the only limited liability corporation allowed to issue banknotes. It meant that they could borrow money. In just 12 days, £1.2 million was raised half of which was poured into the navy, which significantly boosted industry. It was deeply significant in Britain's transformation into a truly global and latter imperial power. In late 1694, Mary contracted smallpox. She faded fast. It was a big surprise. She was healthy and active. It seemed inevitable that she would outlive her husband and her sister Anne, who were both suffering from ill health. On the 28th of December, she died. She was 32. She had tried and failed many times to produce an heir, which left her deeply unhappy. Yet it had been a strong marriage. William probably had just one mistress, which was rare at the time, certainly in comparison to his libertine uncles. William deeply mourned her death and took months to recover from his loss. He called himself the most miserablest, creature on earth. The acclaimed composer Henry Purcell provided this music for Mary's funeral. She was placed in an 850 pound coffin raised on a platform designed by Christopher Wren. The coffin was accompanied by 400 poor women dressed in black in tribute to Mary's charity. The nation was in a state of shock It was assumed by all that Mary would surely outlive her older, weaker husband. It was surely in the minds of the parliamentarians when they agreed to allow William to rule alone, that this event surely wouldn't transpire. Yet it did. William's popularity took a deep plunge. In 1695, with the influence of John Locke, considered the father of liberalism, the Licensing Act was not renewed. This relaxed censorship, only to be used in extraordinary circumstances. Previously, no publication was allowed without the accompaniment of a government-granted licence. Now the nation had a free press. Journalism was transformed. Early modern newspapers began to circulate. What was once a risky profession, it was now an important force, now that it could adopt critical and partisan stances in the political and social affairs of the country. Now the risk of repercussions was lessened, pamphlets claiming William's homosexuality were spread. The combination of numerous close male companions and a conspicuous lack of mistresses lent credence to the claim. William defended himself. It seemed to me extraordinary that it could be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without a being criminal. William's savouring of young men at court was far from unprecedented in the history of English kingship, we will never know. In 1697 William and Louis had fought to a standstill. On the 20th of September they agreed to peace at Ryswick. Louis finally recognised his adversary as king and would no longer assist his cousin James in his attempts to regain his crown. William had finally contained Louis. In 1701 Parliament passed the Act of Settlement. Following the death of Mary and with William and Anne both in poor health and childless, it was prudent to look into the future. After their deaths, the crown would pass to a distant cousin, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, a granddaughter of James I. It would then pass to her Protestant heirs. No Catholic nor an heir married to a Catholic could ascend the throne. The act was law across the Commonwealth until the 21st century. The Act also insisted that monarchs must live in England and not travel without consent and abjure overseas wars without Parliament's consent. It was a pointed reference to William's own reign. In 1700, the death of Charles II of Spain would send Europe hurtling once again into war. The year before, Charles was ailing and childless. It became a struggle to determine whether the vast possessions of the Spanish Empire should pass to the House of Bourbon, France, or to the House of Habsburg, in Central Europe. Both had dynastic claims. The dispute lay in whether Spain should be partitioned to preserve the balance of power in Europe. In 1700, France and England signed a partition treaty. Spain, the Spanish Netherlands, and the Indies would be inherited by Archduke Charles, the teenage son of the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, while Louis's son, the Dauphin, would inherit most of Spanish Italy. Leopold was unhappy with the partition and wanted everything for his son. When Charles II died, when Charles II died, he left everything to the grandson of Louis XIV. The old king of France accepted the will and acknowledged his grandson as Philip V of Spain. In a further provocative act, upon the death of James II, in September 1701, he recognised his son as James III, King of England, Scotland and Ireland. As Europe stood once again on the brink of war, William grew weaker. On the 21st of February 1702, William, despite his physical frailty, went riding in around Hampton Court. His horse stumbled on a molehill. William fell. Breaking his collarbone. The bone was set at the scene and he was taken away for further treatment. Yet the bone-jolting, agonising carriage ride meant that the bone had to be reset upon arrival. William then caught a fever. On the 5th of March, he collapsed while walking in the King's gallery. He was thereafter confined. He died three days later, From pulmonary fever after lifelong respiratory problems. He was 51. His Jacobite enemies would raise a toast to the mole who brought down their nemesis, calling him the Little Gentleman in Black Velvet. He was buried in Westminster Abbey. On the beaches of Brixham, Devon, William of Orange took an almighty risk in invading a foreign country paid off, triggering a remarkable transformation of the British state. The conflict that erupted during the careless, dangerous reign of King James II was settled under William and Mary, and helped preserve stability and continuity. Yet William's eye had been drawn to France for the majority of his reign. William was a man Louis called his true nemesis, a nemesis he could never defeat. The true legacy of William and Mary's reign was the Bill of Rights. It was the scaffold from which the modern British state was built. Despite this, William and Mary's reign was largely forgotten. The Bill of Rights is not an act the ordinary British citizen would cite. It did not cover the rights of ordinary men, nor freedom of expression or belief. A parliamentary state did not equate a democracy, yet it became a model, a stepping stone. For modern democracies for centuries to come. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Queen Anne. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Kings Queens Pod, Instagram Kings Queens Podcast, Facebook The Kings and Queens Podcast, or you can email in at the Kings and Queenspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.